When I take my meds and get enough sleep, I can do at least three things. On the outside, I may look fragile, but inside, I'm very fragile. What do I care about in life? Movies, bagels, and sobbing uncontrollably. <laughs> my mood may be elevated, but my credit score isn't. Everyone loves a comeback story, but I'm absolutely dead inside. <laughs> yes, I'm gay. No, I don't know your hairdresser. <laughs> I may seem lucky, but I'm very unlucky today. People underestimate me, but I just organized my deli meats according to their auras. <laughs> Gorgeous body? Check. Terrifying bouts of mania? Check. Crying in the shower? Absolute check. <laughs> I'm unpredictable. When you least expect it, I'll wash my hair. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> you guys missed us, didn't you? We're back! That was a week off. It's too a week too long, in and my a, opinion. A lot of things happened in the week. In a week, yeah, so many things happened. I lost and found my voice. It was horrible. It's really fully back. It's Thanks. it's fully back. That's impressive. But I had a really hard time with it. I yeah. had to rest my voice for like a full day. And I kept looking at Mary and just saying, like, this is the worst thing I've ever had to do. It was really hard. I'm not depriving the people around me of my thoughts and opinions. Like, I couldn't even talk to the dogs. Sad. It's just not, it's no way to live, man. No, and honestly, I felt really lonely, too. Because we usually just scream around the house and sing very loudly. We harmonize with the vacuum cleaner. And we couldn't do, you were vacuuming and I was harmonizing and where were you, you know? It's just constant noise. We we create constant noise. Yeah, we do. Oh, man. We but can't I, be alone with our thoughts. No. So my voice is back and clearer than ever. Mm -hmm. Mary is back better than ever. I'm back, baby. And uh, what did you think of Christmas? Christmas was the best Christmas. We are both Christmas freaks. Um, is that a Christmas? <laughs> Christmas enthusiasts. <laughs> like Christmas freak. <laughs> it's my, like, what did my mom say? Like, it looks like Santa threw up everywhere. <laughs> that's. Do you remember the song? It was like um, a really hot, like Christian rock song back in the late nineties, I think by this band called DC talk called Jesus freak. Oh, I think that sounds really familiar. Do you remember that? I think so. So we're just Christmas freaks, man. Yeah, yeah. I'll be the cool Christian. I'm not scared of it. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> so what was your favorite Christmas present? Um, by far my metal detector, a metal detector. I cannot believe you got me a metal detector. Y'all, it is, I've been wanting a metal detector my whole life. My whole life I've been wanting a metal detector. And finally, my true love brings me a metal detector. I cannot believe it. There's so there's so much I want to do, but the ground's like frozen. But I, I went digging anyway, and we found a wire. Uh, whoa, we found a wire, but not... At, <laughs> You're leaving something out. Okay. You found something. Oh, the first thing I found? Tell me about it. Tell oh, them. Oh, shit. Okay. I mean, it was within the first 10 minutes of metal detecting. Beep, beep, beep. We got a hit. Oh, my God. What is it? 
then I start digging. I start digging and get I get tired because it's below. It's far below the surface. The ground is a frozen tundra. And I start digging and then I see this shiny thing and I think, here it is. Here's my this is it. Here's my here's the ring. Yeah. And then I will I will never have to work again. You thought it was a ring, maybe. I thought maybe. Not a but coin. Then, but then it started getting longer and longer. And mm-hmm. I thought, what the hell is this? And then I was like, is it looked like a nail, but it was so long. Well, it was a long nail. <laughs> It was really long. No, this thing was long as hell. And it is, it's absolutely a hundred years old. It was the cutest seeing you out there with that metal detector in your plaid jacket. <laughs> and you had just a shovel in one hand and you're sweeping the ground with the metal detector <laughs> in the other. And I said, baby, how old do you think that nail is? And you said, it's got, it's got to be a hundred years old. <laughs> God, it was just the sweetest thing. I would get you a hundred metal detectors. Um, as I was buying it, I was like, I wonder if she really meant this. Cause otherwise this is going to be a big dud. No. But no, you were, I think you cried. I did. I did cry. I couldn't believe it. Cause it was like my, it's what I've always wanted. Oh, it was just, I can't believe you remembered how much I wanted that. I will, I'm watching I, you <laughs> always. You are never without me. I check your browser history every I, night. Oh, that's the least of your concerns. <laughs> so we have arrived at the fourth episode. I can't believe it. This is the fourth installment of the Manic Episodes. We are having a blast still. Yeah. Right? Yes. You're still excited by this we adventure, pre- no? We prepare for for recording. Yeah. Like, we prepare. The last break wasn't even planned. It was just, like, Tuesday, and I turned to Mary, and I was like, we're not doing the podcast this week, huh? And she was like, no, not this week. No, because your voice was gone. I would have fought through it. For the record, I would have powered through it. It was, I could not stand to hear you talk. It would have been, like, <laughs> Jordan's flu game or, like, Kanye recording through the wire with his jaw wired shut. Imagine mm-hmm. the respect mm-hmm. people would have for me if I just was, if I creaked his butt like this. You would have all liked it. <laughs> I would, that day would have become legendary. <laughs> so we are talking about pleasure this week. Well, no. Okay. <laughs> We prepare for this. Um, we're not talking about pleasure this week. We're talking about getting fucked. We're talking get, getting fucked up. You nasty. I knew what you meant when you said getting fucked. You meant like sex things. Yes, dirt. Not this week. Stay tuned. Stay tuned for the sex episode. Dirt butt. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> lubricant oh man well um <laughs> no this week we are talking about substances subbies sub mm, su- uh subs yes yeah, subs uh the mm, that's also in the sex episode yeah. uh things <laughs> that um mind alter mind mm. altering substances right right is that how you want to frame this yeah, discussion substances and usage you were very excited about this episode i want yes. to hear you tell me why i just love substances no yeah no the reason i'm excited for this episode is that um I've been I've been able to like bear witness to a transformation that you've made. And so I'm like more excited for people to hear your story and where you're coming from, because you used to be a heavy drinker and um, and use a lot of substances. And and I did, too. And 
we are now in this new season mm-hmm. of life with clear minds. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting for both of us having a tendency to overuse and abuse um, substances Mm -hmm. and to not have any. (laughs) I mean, right now. It's a really big shift. Yeah. And there's this guy who has a podcast called Recovery Elevator. His name is Paul Churchill. And he says that he has enhanced dopamine receptors, which is something he just made up. And he admits he made it up. Yeah. Um, But he just says, like, yeah, I have I have the capacity to feel intense pleasure from substances more than a lot of people do. And. So when I think about my own propensity toward addiction, I like to think of it that way because it, it, it casts it in a more positive way than I'm an addict or I'm an right. alcoholic or, you know, I have a, an inherent failure. It's like, oh, actually, I have something part of my brain that works too well. Right. And that's uh, that's a huge part of what I've what I've um, witnessed from you is that it's not about depriving yourself of anything it's about reframing and about what you get yeah to do yeah it, it's funny because in even talking about this I am thinking about what I would have felt like as a regular drinker and user of substances just a few months ago hearing this which would have been probably the sound of me reaching to turn this off and switch to something else because if you're not sober talking about this is very very boring I think Um, but I hope that this conversation has some implications or some significance or you know hits home for people beyond that even if they're not sober right Um, and I'm wondering I'm going to ask you a couple questions hon but one I want to ask you is do you think that you know because you are not sober no you're not um, sober right I'm now. Wasted right now. <laughs> 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 um, but you, uh, I'm wondering if you have an idea of. Do you think that this will be a conversation that will be interesting to people who maybe have a healthy relationship with substances, or maybe don't consider themselves sober, or who use regularly, or have a different attitude towards them? Oh my god, absolutely. Because I think everyone has someone in their life that has an issue with substances. I mean, I feel like that's just a fact. Like substances are, even if they're not chemically addictive, some of them, a lot, you know, they can also, they can be habitually addictive. And so I think it's just very commonplace for, for everybody knows somebody and that experiences that. And I think having the perspective that you do, which I feel like is so unique and so positive and in a way that I have never witnessed somebody who, you know, is sober, have a relationship this healthy with quitting. I think this topic touches every element of our podcast. Substances affect queer people and queer culture in a particular way. Yes. I think substances definitely have a relationship with bipolar disorder. Yes. If you have bipolar disorder, you have some relationship with substances, you know, and even abstinence is a relationship with a substance, right? Um, And I know that we're going to talk about my experience, but I want to just start by asking you about your relationship with substances. Mm. Where has it been historically? Yeah. Where is it now? Where do you see it being in the future? Right. I think... um, Well, I will say I started drinking when I was 16 and I loved it. 
I loved it. I loved everything about it. I, I loved the way it tasted. I loved the way I felt. I loved that I could get drunk and forget about stuff. I was like, I had so much fun and I would get goofy and my friends all had funny stories about me of shit I did. And I felt cool. Like there was just so many benefits. I didn't have any cons except for like getting kicked out of my house. Right. <laughs> um, minor, minor circumstance. Um, but I've, oh, I had a love affair with drinking really early on. Um, and I didn't do drugs. I didn't my, in my family smoking weed was akin to like doing heroin. Like it's, 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 it was as bad. Like you don't smoke weed. Yeah. So for me, I was really, really scared of smoking weed. Mm -hmm. I just never, I didn't, I didn't do it really until I was 19 for the first time, I think. And even then I, I did it a couple times and felt, and, and I didn't like it. Um, so I didn't really, I didn't really smoke weed and, um, but I always just loved drinking. And then when I turned 21, it was just all over, you know? Um, like, and I, like I, you're drinking ramped up big time. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, you know what it was is I felt like I was good at drinking. Yeah. I felt like I was good at it. Like mm-hmm. it was a talent mm-hmm. because I could pack it away. Like nobody else. I could drink two or three times as much as my friends and be able to, you know, carry them out the door. And I loved that. It felt like, I don't know. It was champion at something. Yeah. And like, I call, I I remember one time I said, mom, birthdays are the drinking Olympics. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you do. Um, and I was never a mean drunk. I was either fun or crying. Right. (laughs) So it's, there weren't any sort of repercussions that way. And when I was younger, I just, I also didn't get hangovers. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I didn't throw up. I didn't feel sick. Mm -hmm. I just go straight to work. I'm sure I smelled awful. I'm sure I smelled like liquor, but I worked just fine. I partied hard, but I worked harder, you know? Things got bad when I started bartending. Yeah, okay. In terms of your... In terms of my usage. Would you say it was a... Did you feel dependent? I didn't feel chemically dependent. So you didn't have... Like, if there were a day that you didn't drink, you didn't experience withdrawals no. or anything like that? No, I could go. I could go as long as I wanted without drinking. It was... I lived... <laughs> my building in Seattle I lived in had a bar in the building on my floor. I could literally walk... I would say it was like 20 steps from my apartment door to the bar. Wow. It was just so accessible. And the bar that I worked at was literally across the street from the apartment. Yeah. And everyone in that building was a bartender. Everybody I knew just like we all just got drunk all the time. That was the culture of where I lived, you know. Shout out to Belltown. (laughs) (laughs) But I I loved it. And, and I was smoking cigarettes and I was drinking and I really, I still didn't, I don't think I smoked weed then either. Mm -hmm. It was just drinking. I just loved it. And when I was working, it was like, you know, I was encouraged to drink. Of course you're going to drink. Um, and I, I think one night I realized that I had gone through a fifth of tequila myself. Damn. Cause I'd start, I'd open, you know, start cleaning the bar, open the bar at like two or 3 PM. And close down at 3 a.m. Yeah. So that's, you know, if you do yeah. a shot or two an hour. Yeah, that'll get you there. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know, like, I would 
I black out. And I, one time I blacked out and I actually, this happened on way more than one occasion, but I would black out and then I would wake up at like seven in the morning and think, oh my God, I didn't lock the bar or, oh my God, I didn't shut the bar down. I don't remember anything that happened last night. And I would run across the street to the bar with my keys and I would open it up and the bar was spotless. <laughs> wow. I mean, like beautifully pristine. Uh-huh. And I would think, what the fuck? <laughs> like, uh-huh. how am I capable of doing this? And, you know, I think that it got me into situations I wasn't happy with. Yeah. Um, and then I started blacking out a couple times a week mm. and th- then hangovers started. Then I started like I missed out on a few gigs because I was hungover. Oh, so I yeah. started feeling like I really didn't have a good relationship with substances. Yeah. Um, and then I started doing party drugs. Um, yeah. And then I started smoking weed and then I just sort of introduced a lot of stuff. And then I started taking pills mm-hmm. because, I wanted painkillers for my cramps that were so bad. Yeah. But then I found myself um, saving the pills mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and not yeah. using them for cramps. Sure. And just being like, like, well, I could have a spa day at work. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. Um, or just save one for a night when you want to like pair it with a nice red and oh my God. Like, one of your, like a nice bath and one just of your favorite movies. Wonderful. Sure. I loved it. And you're like, and even as I'm thinking about it, all of my, like the senses in my brain are going like, Oh fuck. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Well, speaking of dopamine and enhanced dopamine receptors, there are studies about how your brain processes memory when spikes in dopamine are involved. Mm. And um, this is how slot machines are as addictive as they are. Right. So you could lose 20, 30 pulls on a slot machine, but that one pull when you get something, mm. when your dopamine spikes, yeah. when your brain reaches back for a memory of slot machines, that's what it remembers. So right. it, it, it clings to that the memory of when it was really good, wow. not the 30 times when it sucked. Wow. Um, and I think that substances are sort of much the same right. way. Like right. you, you'll remember the times when you enjoyed it. Like you'll yeah. remember the times, like not the times that... Um, you know, like you felt nauseous or felt, you know, like got a really bad hangover or threw up or whatever. Oh, I'm going to remember that night at the upstairs bar, yeah. chain smoking, mm-hmm. listening to John Denver, <laughs> singing with my friends. Yeah. Like that is one of my favorite memories. Absolutely. And I was shit faced. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to remember all of the crying the next day, all of like everything that ensued afterwards right falling off of the bar stool Mm. falling down the stairs Mm. like all of these sort of these things that we just sort of accept that come along with drinking you know and then abruptly after that i i entered into a relationship that was really restrictive Mm. and what do you mean by restrictive i it was not, um, it was like frowned upon for me to. For you to drink. For me to drink or use any sort of substances. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what I still did um, on occasion, like when I was away from home. But was, this, was this a partner who did not drink at all? Yeah, it was a partner that did not drink. No substances. Yeah, no, no drinking. Substances at all. Just what would you call that? Um, not even a teetotaler. That's like straight edge. Yeah, straight yeah. edge. Uh-huh. I think in that, in that relationship, I didn't, not drinking wasn't a choice that I made. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. It was a choice that somebody else made. Mm-hmm. And I kind of went along with it. Yeah, yeah. And 
So after that ended, I was just like balls to the wall again. So did you drink some at home, but but like a glass of wine with dinner or something? Or was it like not even really? So did you um, did your drinking at that point and no shade here because I have definitely kept my drinking a secret mm-hmm. from partners. Mm-hmm. Um, did you was it a secret then like you're using substances? If that's something you're comfortable talking about. No, I mean, it, it was she knew that I would drink on the road. Um, but I didn't tell her that I would get drunk because she was really uncomfortable with, with me getting drunk. Okay. Oh, I see. Okay. And so like, she didn't have an issue with drinking, but it was like, don't use it excessively to where you throw up. Like that's, that's bad behavior, you know? Uh Um, so I kept that a secret how much I was drinking, I guess. Yeah. Um, and other stuff. Anytime but, I did anything else. So did it change dramatically? Like, did your beha- drinking behavior, your relationship with drinking change at all? After the breakup? No, oh or, no. I'm d- during this relationship. Oh, yeah. Big time. Yeah. Well, I did. One benefit was that it did show me that I could still have fun mm-hmm. and not drink. Did you become like a, were you like a true believer, though? Like, were you like, oh, I see. This is good for me. Like, I, I should cut back on my drinking. Uh, no, <laughs> no. Were you, you still felt that kind of like being deprived of it. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I hear you. Um, because I think I was living two different lives. M- I was, I was living a life on the road that felt like who I was yeah. and a life at home that didn't feel that felt like I was, I don't know, I was pretending to be something or I, I wanted to be mm-hmm. something that I wasn't. So you were much like. Oh, Erica Girardi and Erica Jane. You <laughs> oh, damn. That's a deep That's cut, a for, cut for any of you who appreciated our opening. <laughs> you'll also appreciate that reference. <laughs> um, so yeah, okay. Sorry. Go ahead, baby, please. So then um I just I started drinking a lot more. Um I I A lot more? I mean, after like when I was single. Oh, after the breakup. Yeah. After the breakup, I was just like, I get to do all this stuff. I started smoking cigarettes again. Mm-hmm. I like if I could get if I could get a uh, blow, I'd do it. If I could get pills, I'd do it. If I could drink like any time I was just I think I was drinking every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just felt like I felt like liberated, like I could do whatever I wanted. Yeah. And then we met and I was just like, yeah, like you you're in too. Oh yeah. Like, like we're, we're, I met, I met my, my match. Yeah. It was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was I, fun until it wasn't. And what would you say now is your relationship with substances? I am in a whole new season where I think this happened. It was probably one of the last couple times that we got drunk where the hangover was so bad. It, I think it lasted like two days. Oh man, welcome to your thirties. <laughs> and, and I just lost so much time from it. And I'm re I care so much about my work mm-hmm. and I just feel like it's not worth it to go down that hole. And it's not fun. Even when I'm like, I'm now aware of like, it's not fun anymore to get to that place. Right. I get slurry. I don't, I feel like I get really, really emotional. Yeah. It's fun sometimes to get to that place, but I don't, I used to do that so regularly that 
I can only imagine what I was doing to my body, mm. but it was like, I needed to figure it out myself. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, over like the last year or so, I just, I haven't had a desire to get, to get to that place anymore where now I'm, I actually really appreciate wine, but I don't want to get, I don't want to get drunk anymore, mm-hmm. which is a weird, <laughs> it's weird for me to not be like, yeah, let's get drunk tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I've never experienced that in my life. Yeah. Where even when, you know, previously when I wasn't drinking for the majority of the time, Mm -hmm. when I went out, I'd be like, let's get fucked up. Let's get drunk. Let's Let's go. go. Uh, (laughs) And now I just don't have a sort of a desire to do that. And I think part of that is because I've been able to see you. So I was also in a relationship when my drinking got to its apex. It was mm-hmm. the, the worst of my drinking. Wow. Um, I was drinking, I was going through a fifth of whiskey and this, with this whiskey was my thing. That was yeah. what I did. It was what I did. And I was a graduate student. So for a while I could justify getting really expensive. What, what I think is pretty expensive stuff, like yeah. a fifth of makers or knob Creek yeah. or, but so, um, I could justify that. And then, then the whiskey that I started drinking got cheaper and cheaper. It was mm. like, it went down to like Jack Daniels mm. and then it went down to like Jim Beam. Oh man. And I was drinking a fifth of it about every other day. Yeah. So I think I was spending and I was living in a place where liquor was pretty cheap, but I was still spending about, I think one day I sat down and was honest with myself about it. And I was spending like about Two, $250 a week on liquor. Oh. It was just, just me. Wow. And See, I got all my shit for free. <laughs> yes, that helps. Oh, and this is also when I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Right. Um, and, uh, I was, I was writing my dissertation and I remember I would come home from, from campus. Wow. I had my, I had my red cup that was from a butcher in town and it said, you can't beat our meat on it, which I just love. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I had to get the same number of ice cubes because, you know, drinkers have these weird rituals around drinking and I definitely had them. I had to have either three ice cubes or six. Wow. There couldn't be any in between. And I would fill that thing up with about, you know, I don't know, four fingers of whiskey and like just a splash of Diet Coke. Wow. And I would sit down and start drinking it and start writing, um, start writing my dissertation. And I would write until I couldn't, I would write and drink and write and drink and go outside and smoke and write and drink and go outside and smoke and just keep this going for, from 3 PM until, I don't know, midnight, one in the morning. Wow. And, um, I would write and drink until I couldn't, I remember I'd always know, oh shit, I'm running out of time. Cause my eyes would start to cross and I couldn't <gasps> see the screen anymore. Wow. And then I'd, I'd be like, okay, I need to go to bed. And I woke up every single day, hungover every day. Um, wow. There was a, a point I remember where I was like, I, I don't remember the last time I went a whole day without drinking. Wow. And that happened again pretty recently. Wow. I told myself, I'm not going to go back to whiskey. That's whiskey. Oh. Just is, I'm a bad drunk when it comes to whiskey. But, oh. you know, if it's clear liquor or beer, I'm fine. Yeah. You know, all the kind of bullshit that people tell themselves. So I drank, started drinking beer and it started with like two beers a night. And I was like, oh, am I doing such a great job? And then it like quickly became six or seven. And mm-hmm. that's where I was when I met you. 
what was your experience early childhood? Like, like, did you, were you raised with parents that drank? Absolutely when not. When did you start drinking? No, my parents were teetotalers. My parents really? never drank. My, I never, um, my dad quit drinking when my older sister was born and I never saw him take even a sip of alcohol. He was very much, um, uh, committed to not drinking. Uh, my mom would have, I don't know, she'd have like a, a screwdriver every once in a blue moon, mm-hmm. but I do <laughs> such re- a mom drink. I love it? that. Yeah, I definitely learned though that drinking was something that adults did to relax mm-hmm. and connect with each other and mm-hmm. socialize. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I learned that from my mother. I learned that from movies, from right. pop culture, from ads. But also, I do remember there was one day when we were traveling as a family, and it was kind of a a stressful day and we were, my mom was kind of stressed out. And I remember my dad saying, let's go down to the bar and get your mom a screwdriver. It'll help. And we went and got her a screwdriver. And sure enough, I saw her take a sip of it and she's like, ah, you know, like, oh, now I'm better. So I think I definitely had that association, like drinking relaxes you. It makes you feel better. It's cool. And, um, so I, I drank, maybe two or three times in high school. Really? And the two or three three times I drank, I got really sick because I was acting like I drank regularly. So I didn't know how much to drink, right? So how much did you drink those like two or three times? I don't remember. I do remember the first time it was drinking flaming Dr. Peppers. (gasps) Oh my God. Yep. And I had... I lit the bar on fire once because of that. (sighs) That's that's terrible. The only thing I did was I know that there was a photo of 16-year-old me on the porch at my very good friend Heidi's house with a cigarette hanging out of this hand and there's vomit all over my shirt. Oh my God. And I'm just going like this. (laughs) Wait, how old were you? 16. (laughs) So, um, but that, I'll tell you that soured me on drinking for a really long time because I got really sick. Right. Um, I'm sure. I felt totally out of control. I, I didn't like it. So I didn't have a positive experience with it right away. Right. So consequently, I think I could count the number of times I drank in college on one hand. I just didn't drink. Like I, undergrad, when you were an undergrad? Yeah, as an undergrad, no. First of all, I didn't, I, I didn't turn 21 until after I'd graduated from college. Smarty pants. Uh, the, and also... Because wait, when did you start? You started college when you were six, 17? 17, yeah. It's nuts. And so I didn't... Um, it kind of fell into a social circle of people who just didn't really drink very much. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of people who are kind of stoners and into that sort of thing, but also people who are really smart and studious and kind of nerdy. And, yeah. um, so it just, just so happened. I, I wasn't anti-drinking. I just didn't, people around me just didn't drink. So yeah. I just wasn't really interested in it. Now, if I were at a party or people were drinking, I would like nurse a beer all night, but mm-hmm. I just, I didn't really have the bug. The drinking heavily didn't start for me until I went to grad school um, and I moved to Washington State for grad school when I was 22 mm-hmm. and um, was in a horribly abusive relationship. And um, I drank to I know this sounds so stupid, but to escape that because it provided me with a way of not feeling Ugh. what I was. It, it was like. But so, yeah, I would, I started drinking red wine and discovered that I really liked it. Mm -hmm. Or I liked that feeling of just like not caring anymore after two or three glasses of it. I liked that feeling my lips start to go numb and Mm. then my tongue start to go numb. And that's kind of warm, like sloshy feeling of kind of like not really totally being there. And 
I felt like it loosened me up to write and to think more effectively and, mm. um, and to like disconnect from this horrible relationship I was in this right. really bad situation. It was like the one escape I was allowed. So I just drank all the time. And then I discovered champagne, which I also loved. <laughs> and, um, before class I would, I had a big like Starbucks tumbler that I would fill to the brim with champagne and, <laughs> and I would take it to Cap Hansen's, the bar, the, the dive bar that I loved in town. And I would have two or three uh, vodka Collins. I loved Tom Collins, but I liked him better with vodka. I have two or three vodka Collins just to the point where I could like kind of like I couldn't stand up without swaying a little bit and I would drink the thermos of champagne during Holy class. Holy shit. Because I didn't like the feeling of the buzz wearing off yeah. during class. Yeah. I, I, I really, keep it going. I really didn't like that. Wow. So I kept it going. And I remember one day in class, my friend Johnny turning to me at one point and he was like, Paige, what, whatever is in that mug, it, smell, it smells really strong. And then I remember um, a good friend of mine shortly after that um, was a hairdresser. She was my hairdresser. Mm-hmm. I went to, to get my hair cut and um, it was at a salon where they'd give you like a glass of white wine or a glass of red wine, you know, before getting a haircut. Mm-hmm. And um, I was like, oh, and also I'd love a glass of wine. And she was like, we need to talk later. <laughs> this was the I'm worried about you. You have a drinking problem Whoa. conversation, um, which I was really grateful for. But unfortunately, didn't stop me um, yeah. just because I was in this. I was so isolated. And I think most of her concern was actually about the relationship I was in. Right. Because she saw me so infrequently and she started seeing me so infrequently. And she was like, you're in town. I don't understand this. Like, I don't get why I'm never seeing you. I don't get why I can't get a hold of you. I don't get why you cancel plans all the time. I don't understand what's happening. Right. And um, she's like, the only thing I do know is that when I see you, you're wasted. But I don't know what else is going on. You know, I, I had a new tool in my toolbox. Yeah. All this. The gate was opened. Yeah, the gate was open. The gate of coping. Yeah. Yeah. Of like, this is how you, this is how you can get through. Yeah. It was like, um, you know, you don't know that that's an option for you until you do. Mm-hmm. And also kind of like you said, I was in my early twenties when I was in my early twenties and and getting drunk during class every day. I never got hangovers. Yeah. I felt great. Um, my academic work was stellar. I did an incredible job in all of my classes And then later I thought, well, the drinking got me through that relationship. I needed to have that because I needed to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So by the time I met you, that's where I was. Um, There was nothing going on in my life that was leading me to drink heavily. Mm -hmm. I just it was a, a pattern I fell back into as many nights as we would like you know, hang out and party and drink and get drunk together and hang out with people and have fun. And as many nights as there were that were not remarkable, um, there were some bad nights for me just in the short amount of time that I was a drinker, that we knew each other. Before I met you, I knew I I have a problem with this. It it was not the first time I thought it or realized it. I had partners who had told me that I definitely had relationships that ended because of my drinking. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just still couldn't settle on the idea of it being a problem and definitely not one that I had any intention of doing anything about. Right. And so I, I didn't even have the intention of getting sober. It kind of happened by accident. Right. Having a predisposition toward depression 
and indulging in something that is a depressant right. is, is so tricky because I see why so many people with bipolar disorder, um, treat their symptoms with substances. Right. I can see why you would treat your depression with stimulants. I can see why you would treat mania with dr- drinking or, right. you know, smoking pot or with other kinds of downers, right. or maybe if you wanted to amplify your mania, I, I totally see that because it's, it's such a, it seems like such an efficient way to treat the symptoms. Right. Totally. But I just found that every year that passed, the older I got, the darker I felt when I would drink, even if I started it in like a celebratory mood or I felt positive or nothing was wrong. It was like, it pulled, it pulled me into a darker and darker place. Every, every, every time I got drunk, the place it took me to got darker and smaller and sadder and scarier. And Mm -hmm. I felt less like myself. It felt less like an amplified version of myself. I, I no longer felt like I was smarter or wittier or, you know, capable of making better arguments or, you know, while I was writing my dissertation, I really did think that, you know, I, I really romanticized it, even though I wasn't writing, you know, like Ernest Hemingway style, stupid fiction, you know, about, (laughs) about being drunk. I still believed that right drunk edit sober thing. I really did. I thought like, that's what writers do. They write while they're drunk. Totally. There's something romantic about that. And I thought the same thing about smoking cigarettes and, you know, I say this, like it was so romantic to drink whiskey. I was writing like discourse analysis of interviews with students. It was not, you know, this is not sexy stuff that's amplified by drinking. It just isn't. No, but I could see that. And I often wonder what that project would have looked like if I weren't drinking. Right. But, I like mean, how, how, even how much better it could be. Oh yeah. Cause I mean, I was extraordinarily wow. proud of it. It's still, it's the biggest accomplishment of my life, but that's I was phenomenal. really hobbled by, you know, I, I was drinking a lot and, um, so I kind of feel like I did it with one arm tied behind my back. And mm-hmm. if I, if I have bipolar disorder, that's another arm tied behind my back right. and alcohol also makes your meds work less effectively. Right. Um, I was also for the first time experiencing blackouts pretty routinely right. and that didn't happen to me while drinking before. Right. And I don't know if that was an interaction with my medication mm-hmm. or something that like maybe as I'm aging, I'm less capable of processing alcohol or something like that. But, um, blackouts in and of themselves are, um, like really terrifying. That's a really terrifying thing to happen to the human brain. And we don't talk about it. Like it is as scary as it is. Um, like it's so commonplace for someone to be like, Oh, I just don't remember what happened last night. Like that's fucked. Yeah. The fact that I have, I mean, just so many nights of my life that I couldn't tell you what happened. Right. That I had to, I was like really fucking freaked out especially if I was in a relationship at the time to be like, Oh shit, did I hit on somebody? What did I do? Like, did I like overstep a boundary? Did I like, what drugs did I do? Like, did I, what was I crying about? You know, it would just go from like super fun to immediate shame. Right. Quickly. And, um, I just, one of my favorite, speaking of Quitlet, one of my favorite books about drinking and sobriety that I've read is Sarah Heppel's Blackout, Remembering the Things I Drank to Forget. I think she's just such an incredible, beautiful writer. Even if you're not interested in sobriety, she's just such a talented writer, but she spends a lot of time talking about blackouts and wonders why she doesn't hear more about them. You know, mm. she says, I feel like I heard these scary 
stories on the news every day about like people smoking bath salts and, you know, like, I don't know, ingesting. Like, you remember when there was this weird media circus around people like um, butt chugging. <laughs> Do you remember hearing about this? No. Like people were like somehow like, or like put like inserting like oh, alcohol yeah, 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 tampons yeah, yeah. and stuff. God. She says like, I wonder why all that got all this attention when blackouts are actually really deserving of attention because right. it's a really scary thing to have right. happen to you, right? And something she writes about is this assumption that she had as a drinker that blackouts are really common and that they're right. like normal. Yeah. Which actually... According to this research, more than half of people who drink regularly say they've blacked out at some point, but it's still a remarkable thing to have happened to your brain. Yeah. And neurologists say the thing it most closely mimics is Alzheimer's. And what's being affected is not your consciousness. It's your short-term memory. Stuff is not getting stored from one moment to the next. Um, And that's why, so your short-term memory in a blackout lasts less than two minutes. <gasps> so that's why when you're wasted, you can follow a conversation, but wow. then you get into like a loop. I have the book right in front of me. And just to read a quick passage from it, Heppelo writes, but any heavy drinker understands the constant redistricting and gerrymandering of what constitutes an actual problem. Mm. I'd come to think of blackouts as a surcharge for the grand spectacle of drinking. There was something deliciously chaotic about tossing your night up in the air and finding out the next morning what happened. Mm. But there's a certain point when you fall down the staircase and you look around and no one's amused anymore. By 35, I was in that precarious place where I knew I drank too much, but I believed I could manage it somehow. I was seeing a therapist, and when I talked to her about my blackouts, she gasped. I bristled at her concern. Her tone was alarmist, like the pamphlet I'd once read. Mm. But a trip to any keg party would illustrate that if blackouts doomed a person to alcoholism then most of us were doomed. Mm. Everyone has blackouts, I told her. She locked eyes with me. No, they don't. <laughs> so yeah, I think... Wow. Um, and she talks about how when, you're, you're, when your blood alcohol reads a cer- reaches a certain point, it shuts down your hippocampus, and so you just stop storing short-term memories. And um, I thought about that, and I really... I saw a lot of myself when I was reading that, because I'm 35 years old now. I knew alcohol was leading to more and more conflicts between us. I had a sense that it was the only real source of conflicts between us. Mm. I didn't want to give you some sort of ultimatum because I didn't, I didn't think I wanted you to stop drinking. I just wanted it to be different. So when you just like approached me or no, you didn't even approach me. You didn't even say anything. You just, all of a sudden I noticed you only had two beers one night. And then the next night you had half a beer or something. And I, in my head, I was like, what the hell is going on? I started seeing a new therapist. And one of the first things I said during our first appointment was, um, there are lots of things going on, but one of the, one of the big ones is I I need to quit drinking. I, I, I drink way too much and, um, mentioned that I had a lot of negative feelings about that. And, um, but I, I didn't have any immediate plans to do anything about it. And I didn't know what, not drinking would look like or, um, how that could fit into my life. And I think in a lot of ways, I didn't know that that was possible. I just knew that I was in, um, it was causing me a lot of pain and I wasn't proud of it. And I felt really dependent on it. And it was just scary. It was scary and lonely and it felt really dark and something had to change, but I just didn't have any way of knowing how to do that. And I, I didn't want to call myself an alcoholic. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go to AA meetings. I 
I guess I would have if, it, if I'd had to, but I didn't want to go to a doctor and say I was drinking. I didn't want to go to rehab. You know, right. I, I wanted something, but I didn't want to be, I didn't, I, I felt already marginalized by being bipolar and I didn't want to like feel marginalized again by, you know, saying like, Oh, I'm an alcoholic or I have a problem with alcohol. So I can't be around it or I, you know, I'm never allowed to drink again. You know, I just, I, I couldn't see, I couldn't see a way of being that was okay. It was either I keep drinking and I continue living in this cycle in this loop of being in pain and feeling lonely and scared. And, but at least I have people around me who want to be around me and I'm fun or I quit drinking and my whole life changes. And I'm like a recovering sick person who nobody wants to be around and isn't loved and isn't fun. And it just felt like a rock and a hard place. I think also there was just a lot of, it was fueled by a lot of shame just in general. I just thought, you know, like, I'm just a screw up and I, this is what I deserve. And like, you know, like I really thought that every time I drank too much and got sick, that it was a a failure on my part. It was like a moral failure and everybody else was acting normal that night. And I was the bad person. I was, I was the sick person. I was the flawed person. I screwed up and everyone was judging me and I was an inconvenience and an embarrassment. And I just thought I deserved that. I just thought I deserved it. And it was just, it was just hard. I still have a lot of anger and a lot of shame. I think the shame is anger at myself. The anger, anger is anger at alcohol itself. I have a lot of anger. I feel like I really got sold a, a bill of goods. And I think I, you know, kept my nose clean and got good grades and stayed out of trouble and avoided alcohol for so long and then turned to it when I was in like massive emotional pain and it promised me something it could never fulfill later. And I kept going back to it thinking it was going to fulfill something. And then it was, you know, I remember one, I remember one morning after one of these nights where I got, you know, I got sick and made a fool of myself and I remember saying, I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. I was drinking like everybody else was drinking. I, I didn't want to hurt anybody. I didn't want to hurt myself. I wasn't trying to make a fool of myself. I, I didn't mean to do any, I didn't mean to do it, you know? Um, and I was like, I was like, it's not fair that I can't have a normal relationship with this. It's not fair. And I really resented it. And it never occurred to me that the relationship I deserved was one of not having to subject myself to that. I just didn't occur to me. I thought it was like socially necessary, you know? Right. If I'm grateful to like school and graduate studies and stuff for anything, it's that I feel like I started academia with a mind that was already really open and malleable. I was, I've always been really open to new ideas and really curious about new ideas. And I love hearing other perspectives and other sides of things. And I never get fixed in one position. I'm always willing to hear the other side of, of any argument. I, I love arguments. I love debates. I I love listening to people I I wouldn't think I'd agree with and shifting my perspective and graduate school made me even more open to new ideas, new understandings. You know, you can't, you can't write a dissertation without being eminently open to being wrong. You know, that's been no exception in my personal life. I'm so willing to 
that's, that's why self-improvement stuff is so exciting for me is because I'm, I'm always open to there being a better way. I just genuinely didn't think there was one when it came to drinking. And, um, I felt like I didn't, I didn't even have like sober friends who knew I had a problem enough to like step in and be of any help to me. I just thought I'm either going to drink myself to death or like, or maybe like keep drinking and have like a quasi okay life, but end up with these horrible incidents every few months. I didn't know. I've always been open to new ideas and interested in new ideas. And I love books and I love audiobooks. And I don't know what prompted me to download this audiobook, but it was this book that was published a couple of years ago by a woman named Annie Grace. And the book is called This Naked Mind. And um, it had like a pretty cover and I remember I started listening to it while I was in the kitchen washing dishes and she has this really like um, a voice that kind of reminds me of my own. Mm. She's she sounds like somebody I've known forever. She re- she read the book, you know, in the audiobook. thank goodness. And mm-hmm. I just I instantly felt like I understood and connected with her. And, and I, I I felt like somebody opened the curtains in a dark room. Like I felt like all of, I saw it in the cold, clear light of day for what it was. I thought this, you know, alcohol is making her miserable the same way it made me miserable or made her, it's, it, I, I, I felt it. I, I, I understood it, you know, and it wasn't like a teenager. It was somebody who's like my age or older than me. Like I, I just, I felt like I understood it, you know, and I just connected with it. I just, and, and so I was like, I'm going to keep listening to this just over the next few days. I'm just going to keep listening to it. And I kept listening to it. And I don't know, like the second day I was listening to it, I had, you know, I don't know, a beer or two. Mm-hmm. And then I started, I, I finished the listening to the book and I had like half a beer that night, like you said. And one of those nights too was when I was, I was outside grilling, which was a, I was always, I, I used to always just get absolutely plastered while I was grilling. I would yeah. just, just, you know, just drink beer and get really drunk. And in fact, when I was in grad school, those were the nights when I would like break my phone or burn myself really badly or like drop food. It was always because I was outside grilling and just getting shit faced. I I realized I, I, I looked at it and I was drinking that last day and I was like, I, I don't, I don't have to do this anymore. I'm, I'm free from this now. I don't, I don't want this anymore. Right. And it wasn't even like an active process. The, she she says in the book, like, you don't have to stop drinking. You don't have to stop drinking now. You don't have to stop drinking 10 years from now. You don't have to do anything. Yeah. She said in the book, I can drink whenever I want to. I can go. There's alcohol in my house. I have friends who drink. I go to bars. Um, I have I go to dinner with friends who are drinking wine. I can drink anytime I want. I just don't want to. She didn't so say cool. I can't drink or right. I have, I have a problem. I'm not allowed to drink. Right. What she says in the book is I was mindful of the role that alcohol played in my life. And I started paying attention to it. And mm-hmm. I realized it was not contributing anything positive to my life. And I realized the, the only thing I was getting out of drinking was this feeling I was relieving the need for the next drink. <sighs> but then everything after that would be negative. All, all of the consequences were negative after that. And it was just one thing after another and the guilt and the shame. And she talks about the experience of an addict having cognitive dissonance. Mm. So having this one part of your brain that tells you like, I know this is bad for me. I am a rational thinking, mature, successful adult. Mm -hmm. And yet 
I can't stop doing this thing that makes me act like an asshole or makes me hungover or makes me throw up. Like, and that to, to know that you're doing something that's bad for you and to keep doing it anyway creates dissonance in your mind. It's unpleasant. Right. right. And I just, there are so many things that she said in that book that I think about every day. She has a second book called The Alcohol Experiment where she um, urges people to go 30 days without drinking. Mm -hmm. So she says, it's not forever. It's not a commitment you have to keep for the rest of your life. You don't have to say you're an alcoholic. Just try 30 days without drinking. Even if you don't think you have a drinking problem, just give it a, you know, take a whack at it. So I just decided, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to do 30 days without alcohol and just see what it's like. Um, And I picked the day to start it as September 1st. Yeah. But it was August 27th. I decided to do this and I didn't drink on the 27th and I haven't had a drink since. (laughs) So I never really needed the challenge. Um, I just I just stopped doing it and I haven't had a single pang or craving or feeling of missing out or I didn't have a single. I think I had some physical withdrawal symptoms, Mm -hmm. Um, but I relished them. I was I celebrated that craving dying. I love feeling it like, cause I remember feeling a little bit shaky, like my hands were shaking a little bit and I was like, good. I, I want that to die. I want wow. that craving for alcohol. I want to feel it. It gave me satisfaction to feel it in its death throes. You know, wow. I say that of course, um, alcohol withdrawal for people who drink really heavily is really, really dangerous. Yeah. Um, it can be dangerous. It can cause seizures. Um, right. a lot of people need medical supervision. Right. I, I wasn't quite to that level. Right. Um, but I just, you know, since it's a podcast and people listen to it, I, I just, I don't think that like cold Turkey is medically possible for a lot of people. Um, but you know, but for the grace of God, go I, of course, it's the most important thing I've ever done. It's the most important decision I've ever made. It's the decision I made that I'm most proud of. Mm -hmm. Nobody pushed me into it. There was no ultimatum. I made the decision completely on my own. And in fact, I think it needed to be that way. Um, I don't think that it would have been successful had it come about any other way. It never was before. I don't even think any other method would have been as successful for me. Um, I think it was that mindfulness and being aware of this cognitive dissonance and um, doing what, uh, what recovering alcoholics call playing the tape and, you know, saying, okay, if I have another drink, what is that going to lead to? Let's play the tape forward. Let's start the tape with you decide to have another drink. What happens a week from now? What happens right. two weeks from now? What happens tonight even? And every time I did that, it was just unpleasant. And that was when I decided, you know, that was when I just, I was like, physically, I could not make myself drink anymore. It just all, all I felt in it was, was pain. And it didn't make that, that I think was the most dramatic thing I learned is that there was not a single thing I experienced that it enhanced. If I felt bad, it didn't make me feel any better. And if I felt good, it didn't make me feel better. Right. Right. And Annie says in the book, alcohol will bring you up. It'll lift you up, but only after it's knocked you down Mm. to where you have really low expectations for what feeling good feels like. And it will never raise you up higher than you would be if you didn't drink. Right. She also is very, uh, she is, uh, is critical of the term alcoholic and says in order for you to become an, in order for you to be an active alcoholic, they can say all these things about, oh, you have, you have the, you know, they used to call it like an allergy or the the gene gene or you're predisposed to it, or, you know, you could be 
conditioned to be predisposed to it. Your parents were alcoholics or whatever yeah, it is that she says. The one factor that guarantees that you will become an alcoholic, that, you know, if there's one necessary component, it's alcohol. Yeah. If that's never there, you will never become an alcoholic. Right. 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 Um, so. Yeah. And that's what I, I remember you saying. You, people that, you know, are addicted to cocaine, we don't call them cocaineaholics. Right. <laughs> we don't say like, oh, you're genetically predisposed to it. It's a yeah. really addictive substance. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I think Annie's approach allowed me to like really develop a lot of confidence in what I had accomplished. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any shame associated with it. I didn't have to apologize to yeah. anybody in order to get sober. I didn't have to make amends. I I mean, I still feel like there's a lot of guilt and shame and stuff that I need to work through, but it didn't start with guilt and shame. Right. It also enabled me to, I, I can go to bars and be around people who are drinking. There's a liquor cabinet full of liquor. It just, there's zero temptation. I haven't felt a single craving. I haven't felt a single temptation. I haven't looked at anybody's drink. I've smelled alcohol. I've been around it. But this is not my genius. This is because of this approach. And it's actually not terribly dissimilar from uh, the way that I quit smoking. Right. Um which was to realize there are absolutely no benefits to it. You know, Annie uses this analogy. It's an analogy that she adapts from Alan Carr, who wrote a book that has a kind of a similar method called the easy way to quit smoking. It's a really famous, super influential book about quitting smoking. Yeah, it helped us quit smoking. Yeah, it's great. She borrows this analogy from him about the pitcher plant. So she says, if you imagine this plant that attracts insects and has this like incredibly sweet nectar, and they go into the pitcher plant and they sample it and they don't realize until it's too late that they're drowning in it and they can't get out of it anymore. Mm. And um, the cruel trick that cigarettes play is um, you know, Alan Carr says what makes them so dangerous and what gets people hooked is not that they taste good. Mm-hmm. It's that they taste really bad. Yeah. And because they taste bad and because your first instinct is to like cough and sputter, you think, well, I'm not going to get addicted to this. It's totally. fucking gross. <gasps> oh my God. That's so true. You're like, this is nasty. I can stop anytime I want. Cause it's fucking gross. Yeah, exactly. And then and you're then- in, you're in the pitcher plant. And by the time you want to get out, you can't get out anymore. Like once you realize God. you're you're drunk on the bait yeah um and alcohol is i think the same way my first experience drinking was absolutely hideous i got sick it was disgusting it didn't taste good and so i thought that's never gonna be a problem for me right yeah i've been able to do all kinds of incredibly cool things because of your connections and your status as a public figure but i think definitely the coolest one has been that um you messaged annie on instagram yeah um and um kind of thanked her for the book and for her work yeah and um she responded and I guess was a, was a, a fan of yours already or something yeah it was wild I just I just wanted to reach out to her because yeah I think I wrote you a letter about this where I said I by you making this transformation that is so significant you have changed the fabric of our family tree by you like not drinking and I think also now that I've seen what it's like and what we can accomplish together and, and, and who you are, I just never, I, we could never go back. You can never go back. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to stand it in a huge moment. I don't know I'm getting off track, but like a huge moment you said, if you, if you told me you have to take a shot of tequila, 
or I'm going to break up with you, I would break up with you. Yes. And that blew my mind. And it also made me feel so safe. Your sobriety is that important to you. Yeah. Because it's that important to me as well. Yeah. You you mentioned this earlier that you couldn't see yourself with a partner who was sober in the conventional way. If that conversation happened now and you told me that I would, you know, I would choose my sobriety over this relationship. And I, I think that, you know, I don't know how most people deal with this, but I do know. And we talked to, um, that's what I was leading oh, up yeah, to. Sorry. No. Yeah, so, so I reached out to Annie on Instagram because I just wanted to thank her for this change and like how much she's affected you. And she responded and said that she was a fan of my work and sort of my vulnerability. And, um, and she invited us on her podcast. Mm-hmm. So we got to I IRL. It was amazing. It was, it was incredible. And the kind of take home message I tried to deliver, um, in the podcast was since we were, we were a couple, she was talking to, I said, I I can't tell other people what to do. I can't tell other people what to expect. Mm -hmm. I can't tell other people to drink or not to drink or to do drugs. I have zero interest in doing that. I'm only talking about this. I'm actually really only talking about this because you have, you have convinced me, Mary, that it would be useful for me to talk, talk about this. I think so. I don't feel any need to, you know, um, go, you know, um, spread the word of this on top of Mount Sinai or anything. Um, I'm, I'm just doing it because I've, you've convinced me. And now after talking to Annie, Annie has convinced me that there's some value in talking about this. So I don't mean to suggest that like I have all the answers or I, I, I don't feel high and mighty. Like I I don't look down on people who drink or use substances at all. Mm -hmm. It's just something that doesn't fit into my life personally. I don't have any moral, I don't feel any moral sense of superiority over anybody else. I don't judge any friends or family who drink or do drugs or any of that stuff. Um, I just think, you know, for people who are stuck in the same place I was, I want, I want to provide some hope, particularly, particularly maybe for people who are, have, have bipolar disorder or pre-existing mental health problems. And maybe for people who are queer, I just feel like there aren't very many like queer, sober voices. There just aren't a whole lot of them. Totally. I mean, our whole culture is sort of like, you know, up until Tinder or dating apps, like you went to the gay bar. Yeah. You went to the bar. Yeah. And I think that's kind of dating in general. But I I also just think that, you know, any area where you're talking about a particular struggle with mental health or with our experiences in this life, I think it helps to have queer voices like represent those particular struggles. Just for me, I just, it always helped me to connect with that. Right. It just, it helped me to feel like I wasn't alone in that experience. So I have no interest in telling people what to do. I can only say in my experience of being in a relationship and doing this, it was really important for me that my sobriety be something that I decided to do. That was not in any way dependent or contingent upon any other person. Right. It had to be my idea. It had to come really organically from my experience. It couldn't have been anything I was pressured into. I don't think. Yeah. I've already kind of basically said this, haven't I? Well, I just, I think it's important to reiterate it because I think, right. I think 
Because it's not it a fair was, position for anybody involved. No. That's what I mean to say. Yeah. yeah. But I think it has to be autonomous. Like you have to have the agency to do it yourself Mm -hmm. because if it comes from me or if it comes from, you know, if you're in a relationship and that person says, you know, it's me or drinking and you say, okay, I'm putting the bottle down. Your sobriety is now contingent on that relationship. Right. So when that relationship or if that relationship ends, why wouldn't you go back drinking? I mean, that's what I experienced. Right. Like my, my drinking was like contingent on the person I was with. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was the most important thing that I had in my life. Mm. So everything else existing in harmony and balance in my life is threatened if that's threatened. Right. So I feel like it's like, it's a little hothouse orchid that I have to protect Mm-hmm. At all costs. It's the most important thing I have in my life. But that being said, it's pretty hardy. That's why I'm like, I feel, I feel so safe and I feel your protection, your protectiveness mm-hmm. over your sobriety. And so like when I have a drink or like if we have people over and we have like a bottle of wine, mm-hmm. I am at first I was just like, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like maybe we should have like seltzer or something instead or people shouldn't drink over here. But then like to have testimony from you over and over again that say that says where you say, please drink like it'll it it, it pleases me to know that. Yeah, absolutely. That you are enjoying mm-hmm. and not changing your life. Yep. Or your habits to accommodate me. Yeah, it was so important. And that just feels so good for me because I just, that makes, I feel it makes your sobriety so much more sustainable. Yeah. And it doesn't make it so it's my responsibility yeah. either. Yeah. No, it, 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 and it helps for me, it, it builds trust too because that shows me that you you trust my sobriety like you 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 believe me when I tell you and I think one of the things I've really learned is um I think it took a while for you to really believe that like it was okay for you to drink and for other people to drink Mm -hmm. around me but I have it just doesn't it could not phase me and it's not it's not tempting because I know it's not good for me so I feel about it the same way I do about like I don't know I know that there's dishwashing detergent under the sink and I don't I don't want to drink that either you know (laughs) I'm serious it's exactly the same all of the quitting communities on reddit are so wonderful and the stop drinking uh, subreddit is so fantastic and there's a guy who posted the other day and said um you know I think about drinking the way that I think about my childhood home Mm. I don't feel nostalgic or wistful that I can't move back into my childhood home. It's not where I live anymore. If I move back into my, if I move back in with my parents, I would have to give up my marriage and my dog and my job and all the progress I've made. So it's just a place that doesn't fit me anymore, you know? Um, so I, it doesn't make sense for me to like be whimsical and nostalgic about it. I can think about it, but it just, you know, it doesn't fit. It doesn't, it doesn't fit anymore. Yeah. So that's kind of how I think about it. Wow, that's a great analogy. Yeah, I think it's great. Every part of my life has been enhanced by not drinking. Mm -hmm. My sleep, my confidence, my ability to work, my ability to concentrate, um, 
my, my feeling of self-respect. I I don't have to have this, you know, this, this cognitive dissonance about my own value. And if I have value, why am I treating myself this way? Mm -hmm. If I have value, why do I need to treat myself this Mm -hmm. way? Why do I need to do this? I don't feel ashamed of myself. I don't have to, I don't, I don't wake up worrying about text messages I sent or things I said or things I did. Um, I don't have to deal with hangovers, which at age 35 last like a week and are just <laughs> devastating. Mm-hmm. Um, I sleep the, as Radiohead would say, the deep, deep sleep of the innocent. Um, it's just like everything about life is in, in, in is brighter is, more full of hope is, you know, everything just feels possible to me now. And, um, and, uh, you know, I was never much for other substances, but I'm not doing those either. So, you know, and as I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm just imagining like, you know, 20 year old me would have heard this and would have just been like, Oh my God, that's so unbelievably lame. But (laughs) I'm also like kind of leaning into like, I, I'm getting older and I, I had real instability and, um, real, you know, I just, I threw caution to the wind for years and years and, you know, felt like my, my brain was plotting against me for years and years. And I'm, if, if harmony is boring, I am all about it. I'm savoring harmony. I want, I want harmony and stability and predictability and safety. And, and a lot of what we talked to Annie about was what you've offered me as a partner during this whole process, which has been just, unrelenting support and love and compassion and patience and cheering me on and celebrating every milestone and writing me notes, celebrating commemorating every milestone. And, um, you got me just for Christmas, a beautiful leather, like embossed custom keychain that has my sobriety date on it, which is August 27th. Um, you have been just like a stalwart, unceasing supporter of mine. And, um, I just can't think of what better support would look like. You've just been unquestioningly just in my corner and you haven't doubted it. And you haven't thought like, Oh, what if you start drinking again? Or, you know, you're not like monitoring my behavior. You believe me, you trust me. Absolutely. And, um, I say that, I know that that was because you, of what you observed, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying that you just took it hook, line and sinker, you know, Um, but, um, I just didn't know that it was possible to have support like this. I, I had no idea and I can only imagine what I put you through. And, and I, you know, I mean, I think I'm perennially going to be confused about what you see in me because you're so fantastic. Um, but I especially feel that way about like that version of me that was drinking. I just, it's hard for me to look back and see any value in that person. And just, I remember when we had that dinner party, it was when Rowan came over Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and after she left, you said, was I funny? Was I interesting? And I said, you were sexy and you were compelling and you were so smart and you said just genius things. And you really th- did. I, you really think so? Oh my god! And I just wasn't worried. I wasn't worried that you were gonna, <laughs> you know, go too far or or, you know, start start getting spacey. Like you were just so on it. You were so present. You were engaging. You were funny. You were just so quick. I remember being so worried about it. I I remember 
I remember worrying. Like, I was like, I know I'm going to have, I knew I had fun. I had a blast. And I was like, I felt totally in control. And I felt like everything I, everything I wanted to be in a situation like that, I could be. And I felt really clear headed and I could get to know somebody really who was coming over here. And I could, I cooked and felt like I could clean and like take care of things. And, but I was really worried about it. I was, I really was. I was like, I don't, I don't remember the last time I was sober in like a social situation. I worried that I was just like a total dud. But it was a really big deal for me. And I, I, speaking of the subreddit, I made this big post the next day saying like, guys, this is a really big deal. I had a dinner party and my partner and her friend were drinking and I wasn't, and it was really fun. Like I had a really good time. And, um, it was incredible to me that that was possible. Yeah. It's unreal to me that I thought that, and I thought this about cigarettes for a long time too. I thought that really was the glue, like holding stuff together for me. Like I needed a drink to relax when I got off work, you know? Right. But in fact, no, to use another Alan Carr slash Annie Grace analogy. Yeah. Drinking is like wearing really tight shoes all day just to have this, the pleasure of taking them off when you get home. Mm. Because when you drink, what you're satisfying is the need for the drink that was created by the last drink. Right. You don't crave a drink before you start drinking, right? Like yeah. we are all born without alcohol. People who don't drink don't experience craving for drinks. They've never known it, yeah. right? They're happy and fine without it. Yeah. It's having that drink and feeling like there's something there to return to. Like there's right. that's a place you should go back to. Right. And because of the way that we remember things being pleasurable, what we remember is that that pleasant feeling of being kind of tipsy or, you know, that night, the time we went to a party and, you know, the, 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 the things that are right. That were pleasurable. Well, what really stuck with me is when, I don't know if Annie said this or, or where it came from. I think so. But collectively, I think as drinkers, we, we decide that, when you have that first sip of a margarita or that first sip of wine, you're just like immediately calmed. Yeah. But there's no way that a substance can hit your brain or your body that quickly for right. that instant. Right. So it's something else. Right. And it's not the alcohol that's doing that for you. Yeah. So what can you, mm-hmm. what else is there? It's the expectation. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, in fact, um, Another thing that I've I've encountered is this idea that like because I would drink in either extreme lows. Mm-hmm. Like I remember um when I was in what became a long distance relationship, the last relationship I was in before I met you, mm-hmm. um, that my um my partner did something that I just really can't recommend highly enough if you want to be a decent human being to anyone, which is breaking up with me over the phone pretty abruptly. <laughs> Jesus and I remember the first thing I did after hanging up the phone, I remember I took my phone, I pressed end, I sat on the counter and I had this huge red bottle of red wine that I had been using to cook with. It was like a nasty, like sherry or like a really dry red wine. Yeah. And I remember I just like, I was like, I'm not going to cry yet. I have something I want to do first. And I just reached over and popped the top of it and just downed the whole bottle. Holy shit. Are you serious? Yeah. And I was like, I'm just going to go on a bender for like the next three or four days. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to drink to just get absolutely trashed. Wow. And I remember waking up the next morning and I was like still in my clothes and 
I um I had um I remember it's like you know when you wake up and you just have that film oh, of wine in your mouth awful. all of your teeth like my Ugh. teeth felt fuzzy you know Ugh. and I felt like somebody was hammering a nail in between my eyes Ugh. like I had this awful hangover and it took me a minute to be like why was I and then I remembered what had happened the night before yeah and it was like infinitely worse. It, right. I, I realized I was like, I made that so much worse, but now, now not only do I have the pain of what happened, I have the hangover. I have the not knowing what I did after that. I have the right. shame. I have to go to work. I can't, I, I had to go to work in the state. Oh. Um, and I, I, and, and okay. So there's that. There's one experience where I felt like I always needed alcohol with the lows. Yeah. But also I remember when I finished, when I um, successfully defended my dissertation, all of us with my committee, we went right down to the bar, that bar I took you to on mm-hmm. campus at the university of Arkansas and had a drink. And it was just, that I want right after I defended my dissertation, I was so happy. And they, you know, they called me doctor and I had done it. And I was like, God, I want to drink. And one idea I keep encountering is what magical miracle drug is it that is as effective when you are at that lowest of lows and when you're feeling that high, what is it that can just, it can just magically adapt to whatever you're feeling at that moment. It cannot. Right. Um, and, um, I think, and that's another thing, because I did that same thing with cigarettes. Right. Those are the two times I had a cigarette. When something really fucking great was happening, I yeah. want to bet, or, yeah. you know, um, I, I was having fun with friends. Yeah. Or when something really bad happened, right. if I was stressed or tired or bored yeah. or whatever. Before I got on my bipolar meds, I just, that was, that was when I was peak drinking. I forgot to mention that. Like, that's when I was bartending, was before I was on meds. So if I started having, you know, a panic attack or a, or a depressive spiral, what I call what I call a shame spiral, if I started panicking and freaking out, the of course I'm going to get a drink. Like that's the first thing I'm going to do. Right. Is like to calm myself down. Yeah. And stop freaking out. Yeah. And then it was also if I was manic, I would go and I'll take 10 shots in a row. Yeah, right. Because because if one is good... A whole bunch must be better. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I think... I think it's taken me this long to work out some other options yeah. for when I'm in that position. Yeah. And that's why, honestly, I think this summer my bipolar episodes were really bad. I think because I was trying to work out other options and yeah. that time that I got off the plane, I didn't have anywhere to drink because it was, I had taken a red eye. It was 11 AM and I couldn't stop freaking out. And there wasn't any, like normally I would go to a bar and I would chill out and I'd have, yeah, you know, sure. Three or four margaritas. Yeah. And this just wasn't an option. Yeah. So I had to develop a new coping strategy mm-hmm. and that's where, you know, this, you know, doing a meditation app and, and figuring out sort of my crisis plan yeah. came into play. I think about what you just reminded me of is I've had to learn all kinds of new, even though I haven't had any temptations, I haven't had a single craving, not a single pang. I have had to 
work through emotions where emotions that I would normally just treat with drinking. Mm -hmm. So feeling uncomfortable, for example, um, or feeling a little bit anxious or feeling stressed. Like I've had to learn whole new ways of dealing with that without alcohol. And that's been a challenge. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like you said, like you're working through new ways of dealing with stuff over the summer, like that's going to be hard. It's tough, you know? Um, but I think it's, I think it's worth it. Oh my God. Like it's been crazy. The last two times I've had a shame spiral or a a panic attack, I have been able to calm myself down out of it (laughs) in less than 10 minutes. Yeah. And like been able to go through my day normally Mm -hmm. in the past. I mean, with drinking, even like without drinking, whatever it would be it was debilitating. Mm-hmm. I'd be out the rest of the day. And I think if that was even happening when, you know, when we got together Yeah, where I would be like, sorry, I had, I just, I'm in a depressive bout and I just, yeah, this, I live in bed now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please forward all of my mail here. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, um, I had, um, after a really t- terrifying incident in the sky, uh, when I was, I think in college I had just horrific, really crippling, awful anxiety about flying awful. And, um, the way that I treated that for years and years was, um, I still flew because I, I refused to let my flight anxiety stop me from doing anything. Mm -hmm. I flew, but my routine was, um, I would have take either Xanax or Klonopin I take way too much of it. Oh my God. And, um, then I would go to the, the airport and I would kind of time it so that I had the, I had the, um, I would take the pill before going through security, but not to the point where I would black out. Like I was intentionally blacking myself out on the plane. So I would take the Xanax or Klonopin pre-security, get through Mm -hmm. security, get to the, to get to it get to the airport bar and immediately start drinking red wine, which is my favorite cocktail it was red wine, and some kind of benzo. Mm-hmm. And, um, by the time I got on the plane, my goal was I want to come out of it when the flight attendant is like tapping me on the arm, like, Hey, we're here. You need to get up. That was my goal was not to remember anything. Yikes. Sometimes I would time that well. Sometimes I wouldn't. Oh. Um, I had the experience of like, um, I remember getting a, um, finding, after a flight, finding a slip of paper in my pocket that said that I had been given like additional screen, like that I'd consented to like additional TSA screening, like a full body search. What? I'd signed the paper. I had no memory of it at all. Um, I told oh, you this. Oh, yeah. I, uh, at one point, um, got off of this. I, there was a connecting flight at one point. Didn't remember any of this. Um, really? I was, I had made my connecting flight. I'd arrived at my final destination and the flight attendant said, oh, and don't forget your bag. And I was like, oh, those are that, that's not mine. And she was like, well, you, you got on the plane with it. I think it's yours. And I looked at it and I was like, uh, it was a bag of books. And I looked at the receipt and sure enough, there was my signature on it. I had no memory of any of this. It was at the airport bookstore. And it was a book about um, famous quotations about baseball. I still have, the, I still have these books. Uh, some of them anyway. 
um, a book about body language, like how to like understand body language and like some book of like knock knock jokes about golf or something like golf <laughs> oh jokes, like $60 worth of books. I'm not to laugh. No, it's fantastic. I mean, if anything is to come out of this. And, but for me, I was like, I thought it was fucking funny. I still do. Um, but that was my goal. And you know what I realized though? When by doing that, I was bypassing. I was I was giving myself so little credit. Our brains are so powerful, right. and I am so unbelievably strong. Bipolar disorder has made me so strong. I know my brain so well. Right. I am so mentally resilient. I'm so mentally tough. I've gone through some really difficult things, and I know I can get through a flight without having to black myself out. Right. And that's one of the things that alcohol did to me is it totally destroyed my self-respect. It made me feel like I needed to do something like that and put myself in what is potentially a really dangerous situation right. over and over again, incapacitate myself to get through something that millions of people do safely every single day. Right. And I was giving myself so little credit. And that's how I think of it now is like, I know now I could, there's not a single thing that could happen to me that would lead me to turn toward drinking to deal with it. Right. There's not a single tragedy. There's not an instance on this earth, man-made or otherwise or natural that could lead me to, dr that I would think drinking would be an appropriate response to not a single thing. There's no joy. There's no grief. There's no heartache. Um, and that is born for me from a place of confidence and self-respect. Right that I can instead, I can like even flying now stone cold sober, I can fly now completely sober. Yeah. And while doing it, if I feel anxiety, I welcome, I welcome that feeling because that means I can interrogate it. I can question it. I can actually sit with it and deal with it. Um, I've looked into different ways of treating anxiety and dealing with flight anxiety specifically. I can reach out to other people and see what they do without using substances. Yeah. And, um, so in that way, I feel like it opens you up to more human experiences. Like it, it gives you, gives your, give yourself some more credit, you know, yeah, you're creating sustainable healing. Yeah. And there are things in my life I can't do that for. I can't do that. If I stop taking my meds, I can't like reason my way out of mania. Right, you know, I can't right. because that's out of my control. But damn it, if there's stuff that's within my control and I can handle it with what God gave me and the chemicals I've got up here, I'm going to do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I, I think that's what it means for my mind to be naked for me is like right. I, I can I can confront and deal with any level of heartbreak or tragedy or joy or excitement and deal with it just on my own with just my mind. And I feel this incredible sense of freedom and possibility now knowing I will never have to do that. To I'll never have to spend another morning hungover. I'll never have to worry about anything I said the night before. I'll never have to waste money on, on alcohol ever again. Um, I'll never have to worry that I can't drive my car. I'll never be driving my car and feel incredible guilt because I might kill someone or because I might get pulled over and go to prison. I never have to worry about that again. And I'm only 35. I have the rest of my life to be free from that. I get to be free from that for the rest of my natural life is an incredible gift. And I'm not saying that, that alcohol has that effect on everybody's life, but it had that effect on mine. And to be free from it is absolutely exhilarating. And it's not just like a one-time exhilarating thing. It's exhilarating every day in a new way. Mm -hmm. Every time I'm able to deal with stress or anxiety 
every new situation I'm in that I handle well, my, I grow more confident. I have more self-respect. I have more pride. Mm -hmm. I can remember everything clearly. My mind is so clear now. Um, and I also get to enjoy things like before, you know, going to, um, your shows, even good stress or good anxiety is still anxiety. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I would go to your shows, there was, it was an uncomfortable, unfamiliar situation for me. And I wasn't totally sure how I f- fit into that dynamic at first. Right. So I drank a lot at, at and before your shows. Yeah. And, um, I've since gone to your show. Like I went to your album release party, stone cold sober mm-hmm. and it being able to be present the whole time and enjoy it completely clear like have a clear mind and be able to like truly appreciate what was happening. Every moment of it is crystal clear. I would not trade that for the world. And I just keep thinking there's all these things I get to enjoy sober now. Yeah. Like new year's, you know, tomorrow's new year's Eve. Yeah. Um, you know, the Christmas sober, you know, Thanksgiving sober, football games, baseball games, you know, there's just you know, celebrations, birthday parties that you get to remember. I was thinking about like, you know, when we get married, our wedding day, like, we're going to remember it. Yeah. You know, every, every beautiful, precious moment, like my life and our life together. And you know what? I say that I was going to say our life is so good. I want to remember all of it. Even when stuff wasn't good, even when things haven't gone well in my life, I can't say I'm any better for not remembering them clearly, you know? Um, but I get it in a lot of ways. I don't know if I would be where I am or have the confidence I have, or this renewed sense of faith in myself and, and hope for the future without drinking in a lot of ways. I I'm grateful. I'm grateful for it. Right. And I think it kind of served a purpose for me in a lot of ways. Yeah. I was thinking about that too. Like, if I wasn't on meds or if let's say I didn't have health insurance and I couldn't afford meds, it, it helped me for the time that I needed it to. Yeah. But it stopped serving me really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like I I think about those nights when, you know, alcohol didn't put me into that abusive relationship. I, that didn't start until way after I was already so deep in it that, you know, it took really drastic measures for me to get out of it. Alcohol didn't put me there. But once I was there, I don't know, I think about the, you know, like I would go home and I had nothing to look forward to. I was totally isolated. Mm-hmm. The, you know, it was in Washington. I remember there were these, it was like the winter months where it would get dark at like 3 PM. And, mm-hmm. you know, I knew I would, I would drive home from campus and just be like, just the only thing I had to look forward to was getting drunk. It was, it was all I had, you know, my impulse is to kind of feel sorry for myself. Right. Cause I think about the version of myself that like, medicated in that way night after night. And it makes me really sad. I got through it. I got through it. Yeah. You survived. I found a way to get out of it. I, I, I summoned strength while I was sober to get out of that relationship, to extricate myself from it. Um, to have the, the courage to call on people that I needed to support me and do that. Yeah. And so I see little glimmers of the confidence that I'd have later, you right. know, and um, you, and you weren't ready to quit drinking until you were ready to quit drinking. Yeah. Yeah. When we solicited listener questions, one of the questions that we got like really broke my heart, which was some, somebody said like, what if I, what if I'm bipolar? I don't have access to meds right. or therapy. Right. I would hope to God there'd be some, you know, through like 
some kind of government program. There'd be something that you'd have access to something, I would hope. But if there's really just nothing, God, I don't know what to say. I don't know either. And that makes me realize, you know, what a luxury it is for me to be able to say like, oh, alcohol, you know, I don't need that in my life anymore. Right. I would say in that sort of situation, you have to do everything in your power to reach actual homeostasis. Yeah. You have to be so diligent with your sleep. Diet. With your diet, with getting enough movement. Drinking enough water, yeah. With like actual self-care, the real self-care. Yeah. And surrounding yourself with people that can like encourage. Yeah positive yeah. reinforcement yep. of those habits. And I would say exhaust every possible outlet in your community of like community health organizations mm-hmm. and organizations that exist to help people get help when they need it. I, yeah. I don't want to believe that, you know, I'm also assuming that you're in the United States. I don't want to believe that like, this is a, a, you know, a country where because of money you absolutely cannot be treated. But you know, I, I know that that's, often the case, but, um, so one of our segments is dead. Whoa. The tarot segment is no more. Mm -hmm. It has been 86. Yeah. No more tarot segment. You spoke. We listened. Actually, I don't think anybody said anything. So so one person did. Okay. One person. And then we decided we didn't want to do it anymore. Um, so the tarot segment is gone. We're replacing it with a new segment, which is Listener questions. <laughs> Jesus. That was good. You think? Beautiful harmony. Um, so we are going to ask you guys for questions and maybe we will have more specific prompts next time. Yeah. Um, but I really liked this being kind of wide open. Yeah. And we got a lot of great questions. So thank you guys from that. Yeah, I think this is a lot of fodder for future episodes. I'm still not doing Facebook correctly. I think we have like, I don't know, like 26 people have liked <laughs> it or something. And I have no idea what to do. Like, I don't know what else to say, but it just keeps like, it just keeps giving me notifications where it's like, we'll give you $5 off. I'm like, I, of what? I don't know. What am I, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Um, and also so I posted the same call for questions that I did on Instagram and nobody commented on it. So <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it's like Facebook feels to me like, Hello? 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 Yeah. But I guess we'll just keep doing it. But so, yes, we have questions. Yes. So we are going to do, in this order, listener questions, our obsessions, a poem. Great. That's what we're going to do. Love it. Just a, I just want to have one little note and just say that thank you so much for being so fucking vulnerable in this discussion. Are you talking to me? Yeah. Oh, thank you, hon. I it's really appreciate that. Really powerful and really moving. And thank I'm so you, baby. Proud of you and everything you've accomplished. Well, you have been vulnerable to the nth degree in your career and here and everywhere else. And um, so I will say that you definitely have paved the way. You've given me a really good model for what that looks like. Okay. Listener questions. It's all you, baby. Okay, so we got a couple questions that were similar, so we thought, you know, let's let's tackle this beast. It's called efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, look it up. <laughs> it's in your business textbook. <laughs> ever read econ? Yeah, ever read Do you know business? I learned that from Jeff Bezos school. <laughs> okay, this is from I just mentioned the B-man and you didn't say anything. I just ignore it now. 
<laughs> okay, this is if, this is from Queerly Shiloh. I like that username. I do too. Okay, they say, I have bipolar and my partner has OCD. When we are in the mix of our mental health, we tend to fight a lot. Ooh. Do y'all have arguments? If so, how do y'all work through them in a healthy, productive way? Oh, that's a really good question. And y'all have a different dynamic than we do. Mm-hmm. So one um, one partner is bi- has bipolar disorder. The yeah, other partner has OCD. OCD. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that must lead to some kind of kind of colorful kind of clashes, I'd imagine. Yeah. Some some when when people Tricky. are dealing with different things. Um, let's see. The question was: Do we get into arguments? Yes, yes. Um, we do have conflict. As we just talked about, um, I will say substance abuse my my drinking was absolutely contributing to a lot of that conflict um but yeah we do um and i think there are times when we are in different um headspaces or you know um are, are are dealing with just either our bipolar disorder or just normal ebbs and flows of mental health in different ways. And we're just kind of not syncing up that day. Totally. I think the benefit of both of us having a mental disorder is that you can't scapegoat it. I can't, I mean, I can say I'm feeling really swingy today or I'm feeling really, um, I'm in a, you know, I'm in a sort of a depressive space, but I can't say my mental illness takes precedence over anything you're experiencing. Yeah. Because that's just not how it works. And that's honestly not how it should work in a relationship when one person has has a mental disorder and the other person doesn't. Right. Totally. Because oftentimes people that don't are, are undiagnosed or, you know, say they don't have a mental disorder might be experiencing something else that's undiagnosed yeah. or unknown yet. You yeah. Know? Yeah. And so it's, I feel like just because you have a clear diagnosis, that's a good point. That's a really good point. And in fact, if you think of it, like I'm, I'm the, I'm the defective one and my partner is the normal one. Right. I just don't think that's fair to anybody involved. Um, I have a colleague who doesn't, who will not refer to people as having disabilities, but we'll call people without physical disabilities um, temporarily abled. <laughs> and I really like that That's framing, great. right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, because we we are we are all going to experience physical disabilities at some point in our life, all mm-hmm. of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are just if you just hit the lottery and are, are in a relationship with somebody where you are both just completely neurotypical, is that that's the term, right? Yeah, non-polled. <laughs> uh, good for you. For the rest of us, I think this is always I think this is always a struggle. I would say the most important critical, but also the most difficult thing you can do is to communicate really consistently and to be fair to yourselves and to each other Mm -hmm. to have high expectations for how you should be treated Mm -hmm. and high expectations for how you should treat your partner. Right. Um, and to communicate with each other about what you're experiencing and maybe have some parameters or some kind of boundaries in place for when you're, um, when what you're experiencing starts to negatively affect your partner Correct. and be respectful of what they need to do. Maybe what they need to do is if you're, you know, if you're, if you're having a manic episode and you're feeling a little bit irritable, maybe it has to be okay for them to, you know, go to, you know, take a walk for a while or go stay with a friend for a night or, you know, I don't yeah. know, whatever that might look like. I think the biggest, uh, the biggest, most helpful thing is to learn to not take it personally. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. Because 
I want to be responsible for your emotions. Oh yeah. I want to take care of you. I want to, I want to be the fixer. You have, we have to come to a place of, um, peace to say, I can't, I can't fix it. Mm -hmm. I can't make it better on my own. Again, like just like substances, that's you. I can be, um, I can be a soft place to land if I'm feeling like I'm, I'm strong that day, you know, and we can, we can sort of carry each other when we need to, but if we're both in a swing or sometimes if I'm down Mm -hmm. or I'm like, I'm having one of my attacks and I'm like in bed and I can't get out of bed and I'm sensing that it's, it's causing your energy to go low. Yeah. I can't, I can't rely on that. I can't rely yeah. on you to it's really come hard. scoop me and fix me. It's really hard. Yeah, I know. I hear you. It really is. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it's hard from your perspective. It's yeah. not when I'm in that situation, I just want to, I just want to help. Right. You know? And, um, you know, it's so funny. I remember I always start stories with, it's so funny. It's very, really funny. <laughs> um, it is. Uh, my, I remember my very first girlfriend when I was 16 was, I mean, to this day, I think the most like psychologically well-adjusted human being I've ever known. <laughs> she just didn't have mood swings. She was just, just, it was amazing. It was, she experienced what seemed to me to be a completely normal range of emotions. Huh? She's a very well-adjusted person at the time. I think she didn't have a clear understanding of what I was going through. Mm. And I remember I would there'd be days where I would just, I I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't get off the couch. I was just miserable. And Mm. I remember I would just be sobbing and she'd be like, what's wrong? And I'd be like, I I don't know. I don't know nothing. I don't know. And she was just like, I remember her saying one time, I I don't understand how you can act like this when nothing's wrong. I don't understand. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't, she, it was like, it was like, I just started speaking Martian. Like she was like, what do you mean you don't know what's wrong? You know? Um, and to me, it was like, if I, I don't know if I said, Oh my God, my finger, what happened to your finger? I don't know. You know, I I don't know. What do you do? Yeah. I wanted to explain what was happening. And I remember I tried to, and she was like, well, intellectually she could get it. But still, even now I, when I see you in a depressive episode, there's part of me, I, I hear myself asking, I'll be like, yeah, but honey, what is it? Like, what's wrong? Can you talk to me about it? Like what, what is going on? And I want the answer, even though I know better, I know what it feels like to be in that spot, Right. but I still want to know. Right. Or I'm like, I know I can't fix it, but I still feel like I want to, or I need to. Totally. I think it's just a basic human impulse. Yeah. But, um, I remember there was one when I was going through a funk for a couple of days and I remember I was on this couch and I know that, um, you always get a little alarmed when I'm on this couch during the day and I'm facing that way is when, when you see me laying on the couch and I'm <laughs> facing that way, you're always like, honey, are you okay? And always. <laughs> and I'm, so I was like facing that way. And I was like, honey, I don't, I, I'm just, I just, I'm just in a funk. I'm so sorry. I can't, yeah. you know? And, um, I could see you being like, Oh God, what do I do? What do I do to fix it? And I just couldn't get the energy to say like, I'm so sorry, honey. It's just gonna, I'm just going to be like this for a day or two. Yeah. You know how it is, you yeah. know? Um, but it's hard to then at that point say, okay, well you go ahead and do your thing. I'm going to be in the other room. You know, if you need me, call <laughs> Bye, me. I'm going to be puzzling. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> or like, I don't know. I'm imagining in this, the question that our listeners submitted saying, 
you know, I know you're having really intense OCD related anxiety right now, but I'm depressed. So maybe we can make these two things sing in harmony with each other. Um, yeah, I would just say communication and learning each other's kind of emotional rhythms as much as you can and being sensitive to what the other needs, whether that's right. space or closeness. And like you said, not to take it personally. Yeah. If you need space from me, I cannot take that personally. Yes. Um, yeah, I can't, I cannot think that it is somehow a badge of honor for me to be the one with the magic power to snap you out of a depressive episode. Right. That's not what relationships are for. Right. That's not an expectation in a healthy relationship. Right. But I think what comes before communication, because if you just talk, but you don't, you're not aware of what's going on in your brain or what's going on in your partner's brain, you have to come to the table with a sense of awareness. That's a great point. So you have to be able to study your own brain patterns, yeah. your own triggers, yeah. why something happened and take responsibility for it and also be able to communicate that. Have we already, did I already talk about this, about mm. the patient rights and responsibilities? Mm-mm. When, you or your partner has a mental illness. I think about the, when you go to the doctor, sometimes mm-hmm. there'll be like a list of patient rights and patient responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So you have a right to a partner who is supportive of you mm-hmm. and understands what you're going through mm-hmm. and is patient with you mm-hmm. and is compassionate and right. learns about your disorder. Right. right like right. if, if somebody offers you resources about what it's like to have borderline personality disorder, or what it's like to have OCD, like learn about it. Right. Like I think you have a right to a partner who will put forth that energy right. to understand what you're experiencing. Yes. However, there's the other side of this. Yes. This is the part that's not as much fun. It's the responsibilities. I hate this part. <laughs> you also have a responsibility to come to the table, like you said, with self-awareness, with at least some level of work that you've done or are willing to do. Right. You have a responsibility to take care of yourself. If you are, if you're in a relationship with somebody, I know, I don't know, maybe this sounds like a controversial thing to say. Hmm. I think if you are someone's partner, you have a responsibility to care for yourself. A hundred percent. You cannot, it's like the oxygen masks on the airplanes. You can't, you're supposed to put your own on before you help somebody else. Right. Yeah. If you have a diagnosis, if you have a mental disorder, you should be either on meds, in therapy, or doing consistent work. Yes, 100%. You yeah. Ha- you would. You just have to. I mean, yes, I think there is a point where some of us reach some sort of echelon of, you know, it not being a constant struggle or a constant stress for, I think, like, I feel like you and I are pretty high functioning within our bipolar disorder, but I mean... Me six years ago, 10 years ago, it was a constant battle. I just love the rights and responsibilities because I think I just feel like so easy when you have a mental disorder to just give yourself a sort of pass. (laughs) Yes. I used to go into a panic spiral and I just say, fuck it. Like, I just have to freak out because... That's what I, that's what I do. Yeah. That's what happens now. I get triggered by something and I freak out and I'm, I'm out for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens to me without realizing, could this be better? Could it be different? Right. Could I, could I have some sense of control over this? Yeah. Do I have a choice to go there? Yeah. And where, when does that switch happen mm-hmm. where it truly is out of my control? Right. And I would find like, once I started studying that, 
I felt like I started avoiding panic attacks Mm -hmm. because I would say, oh, I'm going to choose to not freak out right now. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think too, along with that awareness, I think having a conversation with your partner when both of you are experiencing a period of relative stability, Mm -hmm. even if that's just like for an hour, Mm -hmm. um, to take advantage of that, to talk to each other and ask. So when you are, when your OCD creates anxiety for you, or when you're in a particular situation where, you know, your, your, uh, your anxiety or your OCD is particularly, is particularly difficult for you. What is, what is support? What is, what is, what does good support look like for you in that moment? Right. I think when it's happening is the absolute worst time to figure that out. Unfortunately, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need right now? Yeah. And (laughs) people who are, I used to get really irritable and just in general, mania made me irritable. Depression made me irritable. Mm. And I was, I would push partners away really strongly Mm. and in a really irritable way. I would be like, just leave me alone. Stop it. Right. Um, and I realized, oh, that's a really bad time to talk about it. Okay. So when I'm depressed, here's what I, here's what support looks like for me. Yeah. But I think, um, you know, negotiating that and figuring it out, someone else's happiness and stability is not your responsibility. It cannot be, it is, it's impossible. It's unfair for both of you. Mm -hmm. You cannot be responsible for somebody else's mental health. That's not how it works. That should never be an expectation that's put that that is placed on you by anyone. You can be supportive. You can be a source of love. You can be someone's champion. You can be a mirror reflecting the respect they have for themselves, but you, you can't create that for someone else and you can't be responsible for keeping it alive. I don't think maybe, maybe I'm wrong and think in saying this, but just, I just don't think that that's fair for anybody involved. Yeah. Prioritizing your own mental health and like, thinking about it differently. You know how they'll say, if you go in for a job interview, don't, don't, don't think, okay, how am I going to best fit this job? Think how is this job going to best fit me? Right. I would think about how is this relationship going to best fit my abilities to care for someone mm-hmm. or my ability to be supportive, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say just like an honest, what do you call it? Like an honest inventory, like doing an inventory. Yeah. What resources do I have? What can I offer you? And what do you right. need? Wow. I love that. And I would say just specifically for you and I, I know one thing that benefits me is stepping away for about 10 to 15 minutes doing one of my, I'm just really into the calm app Mm -hmm. and doing those meditations. There's these guided meditations, even just the sound of somebody else's voice telling me to breathe Mm -hmm. and asking me to zoom out is really helpful. Yeah. Then I can sort of come to the table and be calm. Yeah. And, and going on a walk really helps for me. Sometimes that's tricky though, because I don't want to storm out. You know, I I don't want to feel like I'm abandoning the argument or abandoning the conflict or you. And I'm really glad you said that because I think that sometimes in relationships, people, people do have a desire to sort of get fresh air to walk to sure. Yeah. And have sort of a desire to leave. And it's really important that it's communicated that the, they're not leaving you. you Oh yeah. Right. And I love that. Like you'll go on a walk or something and it'll be, you'll make it really clear that it's just, this is what is best for you right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I can see that and, and feel that and know that, that this is 
rooted in love. And I have a right to do that, right? Yes. I have a right to take care of myself. Mm -hmm. I have a responsibility to you as your partner to let you know that that's not me storming out. I have a responsibility to tell you what I'm doing. I have a responsibility not to disappear because that's really scary. Mm -hmm. That can, that can create anxiety. It's Mm -hmm. not fair to just walk out on somebody. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And I think you have to study your motivation and your intention to do something. Yeah. You know, are you, are you leaving to clear your head? Are you leaving to punish somebody? A hundred percent. Yeah. Are you leaving? Cause you want to make somebody feel bad. Yep. If your motivation is to make someone feel bad, you have some work to do and to punish know? somebody with your absence. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know we talked about this in our first episode. Thank you, baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary just handed me coffee as one does at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know we talked about this in our first episode. One of the things that I don't want to do in this podcast is bloviate about our perfect relationship. Well, it is perfect. <laughs> it no, is perfect. No. And, and I feel actually really smug about it. And should, <laughs> you should be as jealous as you are. I, I do, though, think it's really important to reiterate. This is something that Mary and I have consciously built that has taken work and communication and commitment and it didn't like materialize out of thin air. No, and and it also it took, I'm also 35 and yeah. I took, it took like a lot of failed relationships for me to figure this Same. out. So this is not like, this isn't just not something that fell on our heads and all of a sudden we've magically figured it out. Right. I just, I don't want to set up like some pie in the sky expectation for right. people. And we've also learned not just from previous relationships, but also with each other of what works and what doesn't work. And yes, I know this is a new segment. We made it really long. This is, uh, I think it's a whole nother episode. This, this Instagram user got their money's worth. Yeah. We are definitely, um, I mean, I'm going to edit this, but we're at two and a half hours right now. Oh shit. That being said, it's time for that. That was a sound effect. I like it. Our obsessions. Obsessions. There are also some like, um, karate chops, like, a. Very oh. lethargic karate jobs. Oh, oh, shh, obsessions. Okay. Honey, do you go first? Okay, I'll go first. So, if you couldn't tell by our f- beginning of this podcast, I am obsessed with the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Hell yes. I thought this day would never come. Um, you have talked to me about Real Housewives of Beverly Hills and you frequently reference Lisa Vanderpump and would these you say, characters. Would you say that I've been a good ambassador of the show? Big time. Okay. Yes. Thank God. Um, but I just wasn't ready. You know, I'm a, like a staunch, uh, supporter of the Bachelor franchise and not that those two franchises are at war with each other, mm-hmm. but I just... I didn't really get it. And also there's like 600 different Real Housewives cities. Mm -hmm. It just felt very overwhelming to me. Mm. And so I felt like if I watched one, then I would have to watch them all. And now actually I do want to watch them all. Hell yeah. Um, But there's something just spectacular about the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. It's all I can think about. I think we've watched three or four seasons in a matter of a week. Yes. And I don't give a fuck. This is, we have to embrace this, this pop culture stuff. It's the glue that holds us together. Right. Yeah. And you, you know that I, 
I had no judgment about your bachelor fandom because I told you immediately when you said it, you're like, Oh, I think you sensed that I was like an intellectual or something, which now we know is not true. Um, because you're like, I'm ashamed. I love the bachelor. I'm obsessed with it. And I, I looked at you dead in the eyes and I said, I have watched every single goddamn real housewives franchise. I, I have several episodes of it memorized. I mean, it's incredible. So what we did at the beginning of this episode is a dream come true for me. It was so much fun. Unreal. I am also currently obsessed with yet another phone game. I have been playing The Sims Mobile. <gasps> this is a blast. Mary turned to me last night. We were both in bed and she said, look, honey, I'm at work. <laughs> and she tilted her phone toward me. And there's just this precious like purple haired character enthusiastically chopping food in the kitchen. So cute. Thank you. Just like everything else, it's darling. And I will say that the new Sims mobile is much better for people that do get addicted to games. It gives you, it gives you options to not constantly be on it. Good. Where it's like you can send your Sim to work for eight hours mm -hmm. and you can speed up that process if you want to play but it's just really, it's nice. I'm just, thank you, creators of Sims. Good. Yes, um, healthy. The third thing I'm obsessed with is our dogs. Oh, they're wonderful. I can't, I, I feel like it's getting worse. Like, I don't know what's happening. It's getting worse. Like, what is? A, a, my obsession with the dogs. Yeah, because they've been wonderful lately. They're so cute. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make sure they're cared for all the time. And that they have the best food in the world and that they go on tons of walks. And, and what's been you know. the, the most annoying thing that has happened with the dogs today mm -hmm. has been that as we've been recording this podcast, our adorable beagle turnip has been trying to burrow under the pillows on the couch so that she can snuggle between us. That's, that's the, the worst of that's her behavior. That's the worst thing that's happened tonight. Yeah. And we were like, damn it, turn up. Turn up. And what she wants is to snuggle between us. Sweet. Yeah. And Georgie's growing up. She's growing so fast. She's, she's just so. And she just took, she took her chew toy and she walked down the hallway and she put herself to bed in her, in her crate. God, they're fabulous. They're such good dogs. And I just want to give them the best life possible. Do you feel to update one of your last obsessions? Mm -hmm. Do you feel hydrated? Oh, I'm fucking hydrated. And we got a humidifier for the room. That was my first obsession is the humidifier. Yeah. This has been like night two or three of the humidifier. Let me tell you how hydrated my passages are. <laughs> that's that's. Oh, well, <laughs> feels weird now that I say it out loud. But I sleep as if I am in a hammock dangling in the misty understory of the rainforest. Lulled to sleep by the gentle snoring of a sloth or you. That is That's so I sleep. sweet. I mean, my thoroughfares are moist. Oh um, my God. What thoroughfares? <laughs> my, the caverns of my olfactory Ooh, My olfactory highways are clear Ooh. as a bell. So that's my number one obsession. My next few obsessions are connected. Okay. Mm. First of all, I just applied for a sabbatical, y'all. So my university. Also, y'all ask a lot of academia questions. We um, have to cover that. Soon. We have to cover them. Or I could just do it now. Don't. 
Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't feel that way about it. Um, but maybe I'll do like a, like, I don't know, like a bonus episode where I answer y'all's questions about academia. We should, we should just do a whole, we'll, we'll talk about it later. So I applied for sabbatical. It's a pre 10 year sabbatical program, um, which is really rare for a university, the size of the one that where I teach. And if I am awarded this grant, then I will go on sabbatical in the fall of 2020. And let me tell you, I'm so excited about it. So in anticipation of that, I am trying to reconfigure my relationship with technology because it distracts me. And I'm worried that by the time I go on sabbatical, I will still be playing um, words with friends matches against people I haven't spoken to since high school. (laughs) Um, And I won't be able to stop. Mm -hmm. and, And or that like. June's journey, legitimately, I think I was playing for three or four hours a day. And I'm no closer to any kind of resolution. The story is like onions, layers and layers. Did we? Did you talk about June, June's journey I did. previously? Okay. And it turns out, they teased me. They said, oh, click on this little airplane. I clicked on the airplane. It said, you want to play Pearl's Peril? It's a whole nother game. Oh, God. Another alliterative hidden object game. And I'm, I'm not taking the bait. Because guess what? I uninstalled that app. Because good, you un- uninstalled June's Journey. I uninstalled it. I uninstalled <gasps> Words with Words with Friends too. You Sorry. did. Sorry to those of y'all. If I gave up in the middle, you win. Enjoy the victory. It's not real. <laughs> I'm reading this book. Um, it is called How to Break Up with Your Phone. Uh, a woman named Catherine Price wrote it. Somebody calls her the Marie Kondo of brains, which I love. <laughs> I'm assigning this to my students. I'm teaching a, a class next semester that's writing about about uh, big data and big tech and privacy and social media and all this stuff. And um, so I'm assigning it to my students. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make them undergo this process. But uh, so I'm obsessed with this book. I love it. And I am not, as you know, I'm not a Luddite. I love technology. I love gadgets. I love social media. However, if I'm going to be successful on this, on sabbatical, I'm going to have to learn to negotiate distractions. And right. I spend a lot of time on my phone. She spends the first half kind of laying out terrifying facts about how phones affect your attention span and she goes into research about like neuroplasticity and multitasking and by the way it turns out people who think that they're good at multitasking are like colossally bad at it (laughs) nobody's good at it um so she talks about this study there's a section of the book where she says we fear our own minds and she says that one reason for people's dependency on phones and the reason that average the average American will actually pick up and look at their cell phone between 40 and 60 times a day, um, that the reason that we develop that relationship with it is that we are so uncomfortable just being alone in our own thoughts. Right. And so to illustrate that, Price talks about the study that was done in 2014 by uh, researchers from Harvard and the University of Virginia. And they published the results of this two-part study. So they took a bunch of people and gave them, a, uh, with consent, of course, gave them a mild electric shock and uh, asked them, would you pay money to avoid this electric shock in the future? If I told you, you can give me 20 bucks and I won't shock you again, would you pay to get out of getting shocked again? And 42 of this of these people said yes. So they took these 42 people who said yes to paying to get out of the electric shock, right? Yeah. And they put them in an undecorated windowless room and said, okay, your only task is you need to sit here and entertain yourself for 15 minutes with your own thoughts. So just 15 minutes, just sit here, entertain yourself. They said, though, there's one thing you can do to entertain yourself if you like. You have one option. 
if you want, you can press this button and you'll get that same electric shock. The one that you said you'd pay to get out of, you can shock yourself. That's the only thing you can do. You don't have to, but if you're just, if, if, if you can't entertain yourself with your own thoughts, you can shock yourself, right? What they found was that 18 of those 40 people did. They shocked themselves. They were so uncomfortable or, or so were they bored. Just, were they just curious? Did they shock themselves more than once? There was one person who's obviously an outlier who shocked himself 190 times. Everyone who shocked themselves did it more than once. And they found <gasps> that it was like after a few minutes, they got bored and, sh- and elected to shock themselves rather than to be alone with their own thoughts. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I have been really mindful. I also learned in How to Break Up With Your Phone, Price says that there's an interview with a guy who did, um, who is an, uh, what they, there's, there are all these jobs for people they call design ethicists now who will design um, ethical tech and ethical apps that are not designed to drive what they call engagement, but which is actually mm. just them hooking you into the app. Right. And he's a design ethicist, but who was involved in doing design for Instagram. And he said, Instagram does this thing where it will monitor your use of the app and how you engage with it and how they can kind of suck you in and get you to engage with it more. So they will kind of build a dam when you start getting likes on things and they won't deliver them to you one at a time because that's not as satisfying. That doesn't give you as big of a dopamine hit if you only have one like. So wait until you have three or four or if you have a bunch of followers, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, 60, and then give you a glut of likes all at once and tell you that they were in the same time span because that you get a bigger dopamine hit if you see that you have all those at once. Yes. Yeah. And another thing, the final thing I'm obsessed with, I'm obsessed with my own identity. <gasps> I'm obsessed with my sort of burgeoning, awakening gender identity. Wow. And a piece of that I've realized is my name. I love my name. I don't feel any animosity toward my name. I just feel like it's 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 not me either anymore, or maybe it never really was me. It doesn't mm. fit with who I'm realizing I am or mm. what I feel like. And I still haven't figured that out yet. I still don't quite know. Yeah. But I think it's okay for me to say I've picked a name that is my name. I feel yeah. like it's always been my name. And, and it, I've been thinking about it for years. And now I've decided. And I think a lot of this was spurred by our conversation. Yeah. About identities and stuff. My name's Wyatt. <gasps> it is. I love it, honey. That's who I am. And even just saying it now, it feels... it's. It feels incredible. It feels really right. Yeah, this is my partner, Wyatt. So I'm obsessed with my Wyattness. <laughs> oh my God, honey, that's so cute. Updates to come. <sighs> and Mary got me a dop kit, a new, like a really nice leather dop kit for Christmas. It has my initials, my real initials, like embossed in it. And um, also on my sobriety keychain, it says Wyatt. So cool. That's your name. 2020 is going to be badass. 2020 rules already. Yeah. All right. Son of a bitch. This is really exciting. I know. Do you want to read your poem? Yeah. Do you want to read yours? I'm actually not reading a poem. I'm cheating. I'm sorry. I'm cheating on you. I'm not. (laughs) I'm reading um, an excerpt from a short story. Um, This is uh, by Ada Limon. Called 1976. I love this poem. I think it's one of my favorites. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. After the birthing of bombs, of forks and fear, the frantic automatic weapons unleashed, 
the spray of bullets into a crowd holding hands, that brute sky opening in a slate metal maw that swallows only the unsayable in each of us, mm. what's left? Even the hidden nowhere river is poisoned orange and acidic by a coal mine. How can you not fear humanity? Mm. Want to lick the creek bottom dry to suck the deadly water up into your own lungs like venom. Reader, I want to say, don't die. Even when silvery fish after fish comes back belly up and the country plummets into a crepitating crater of hatred, mm. isn't there still something singing? The truth is... I don't know, but sometimes I swear I hear it, the wound closing like a rusted over garage door, mm. and I can still move my living limbs into the world without too much pain, can still marvel at how the dog runs straight mm. toward the pickup trucks, mm. breaknecking down the road because she thinks she loves them, because she's sure without a doubt that the loud roaring things will love her back, mm. her soft small self alive with desire to share her goddamn enthusiasm until I yank the leash back to save her because I want her to survive forever. Don't die, I say. And we decide to walk for a bit longer, starlings high and fevered above us, Winter coming to lay her cold corpse down upon this little plot of earth. Perhaps we are always hurtling our body towards the thing that will obliterate us, begging for love from the speeding passage of time. And so maybe like the dog obedient at my heels, we can walk together peacefully, at least until the next truck comes. Oh my God. <sighs> Oh, that's so beautiful. I just, the way it weaves, mm. she's just so brilliant. I guess she said um, the the, uh, the starlings high and fevered or something yeah. like that above is really gorgeous. And the silvery fish, fish belly up. After fish comes back. And it made up. me really sad. It reminded me of turn up. I know. Because that's, that's, that's her. That's her. She just, she. Everything will love her back. Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you for sharing that one, honey. Thank you for letting me. So, like I said, I'm being unfaithful to the genre, as Alex <laughs> Trebek would say, of poetry. This is by uh, Elizabeth Talent. She wrote this collection of short stories called Honey. It's one of my favorite things in the whole world. And then she wrote a novel called Museum Pieces. It's also gorgeous. Mm. But this is uh, called Briar Switch. And it is, or it's from a story called Briar Switch, and it's from a collection called um, Mendocino Fire. California girl is what her brother sometimes called her, meaning lightweight and out of touch, no longer adapted to harsh Iowa caliber reality. And she can't turn out to be what her brother implied she is, a California abandoner, an escaper and eluder of responsibility, the only child not there the night her father lies dying. She can't bear that. The parking lot's raw cold ablaze in her chest. It sets her coughing. Her raincoat is gauze, and when she looks down, each button sports a crescent of snow. If only the knitter had knit mittens, too. Her hands would be cozy striped paws, not fisted, freezing, and useless pockets. 
Inside her stupid boots, her toes begin to sting. Behind, the low-slung terminal sends out its diligent, snow-diffused radiance. If her father is still conscious, he has observed that her brother is there and her sister is there, and she is not. But they live here. All her sister had to do is drive across town. Her brother lives in a different but nearby small town and would have had to drive for 20 minutes. But what's 20 minutes earlier in the day when the storm had barely begun compared to these wheeling veils? The white skies swept in shuddering slow motion dump. Here comes shame. Let it come. Shame is better than getting herself killed. Sure you want to go out in this? Give in, turn back, walk through those sliding doors into warmth, into refuge. It seems a minor matter of the distance between where she is now and the actual location and the space of that door. Breath pluming, hers the only tracks in the Arctic, halogen lamps blurring and refocusing, mm -hmm. car after car, hard candy colors dimmed, each car a neutral platinum glaze frozen around a core of essential dark privacy. Wonderful in a way cars rarely are. She never sees cars really. She's not a person cars matter to, but these do now. Set apart by the storm, they matter like musk oxen would matter. Besieged in their fortress bodies, hunkered down to endure her aliveness called to by theirs. The aliveness of cars, which of course does not exist. Still, it's fantastic. The vast field of empty, gallant vehicles. I just love the movement of her writing is so fucking beautiful. Honestly, Honey by Elizabeth Talent is one of the most exciting, electric, incredible it's, you know, when you read a short story and you'll remember a line of dialogue like mm. two or three years later, yes. it's that kind of thing. She's brilliant. So we did it. We did another one of these. We did it. We just keep doing it. I hope you guys liked it. I asked people overwhelmingly. They said they liked the longer episodes. So okay. at this point, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering how much honey they'd like in their tea. You know, <laughs> do you want us to go all the way with this? We will. Don't, don't test us. We will give you... <laughs> If a little is good, a lot a must lot be better. Good. Much better. So thank you guys. We love you all so, so much. We would dream about you if we ever slept. But we never do. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you guys next time. Bye. <laughs>